Hello and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue BTN. We're back on the Take 10 Podcast in the midst of a huge week in the conference with a massive Ohio State and Penn State matchup this weekend. Talk quite a bit about that game with our researcher Harold Shelton in his weekly segment coming up on the back end of the show. But first, we have a little bit of discussion about that game with our main guest, Jerry DiNardo. And if you've watched any BTN since its inception in 2007, if you watched any afternoons of football or any of the coverage, you likely know Jerry's face and his personality. Jerry was the former head coach in Indiana, Vanderbilt, and LSU, and he joined the Take 10 Podcast for the first time here on this episode to talk more about his background in coaching and in football, and also a little bit about present day Big Ten football, including the Penn State-Ohio State matchup. And uh, also this current state of the Indiana program, his former program, uh, when he coached there back in the early 2000s. So great discussion with Jerry coming up. We'll talk about, like I said, his uh, life in football, a lot of fascinating stories and good insight from him, stuff you might not hear while he's on our air talking uh, present day stuff. So definitely stick through his uh, 30 or so minute interview and then stay tuned for, like I said, Harold Shelton's in-depth stat head segment where he goes behind the numbers of Big Ten football and basketball in the back end of the show. So first up, got Jerry DiNardo, longtime BTN analyst, longtime college football coach and former player. And that interview with Jerry starts right now. All right, very pleased to be joined by Big Ten Network analyst. Been here since day one. He's one of the faces of the network and a former college football player and coach. It's Jerry DiNardo. Jerry, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. Glad to, to finally have you on. We're in the new studio. We got a nice, comfortable couch. So I hope you feel right at home here. I do. In fact, this couch is probably more comfortable than the one I have at home. <laughs> there you go. So don't get any ideas. You can't take this out of here. <laughs> All right, Jerry. Um, you know, people that have watched BTN have seen you for years. Um, I'm sure they know you as a you know front-facing figure on the network, but they might not know about your days even prior to. Indiana as, as a head football coach there. So I want to get into that a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit of uh, present-day Big Ten football at the end. And I want to start kind of at the very beginning. Uh, grew up out east and then ended up at Notre Dame as a player. How did you get drawn to Notre Dame? Was it, was it kind of just the, the aura of it being a big school? And what made you, you know, kind of migrate to the Midwest to play football? Well, my older brother Larry was a player at Notre Dame. He was a captain. He was a great player. And... Uh, I went to St. Francis Prep, which was a Catholic school in Brooklyn, and you know I think most of us followed Notre Dame just because uh, obviously the Catholic high school, Catholic university. And then I went to prep school for a year because I grew late and I didn't get really recruited out of high school. So I went to prep school at a place called Tabor Academy in Marion, Massachusetts. And I wasn't highly recruited. Uh, and back then, the way recruiting went is coaches sent you a questionnaire, you filled out the questionnaire, then maybe they came to see you, then they sent you plane tickets, and then you went out and visited. It wasn't anything like it is now. So I didn't want to go to Notre Dame because my brother was a really great student, a really great football player, and I didn't want to follow in his footsteps because I was neither. And so I can remember getting the questionnaire and not filling it out. And my dad called me and says, they tell me you didn't fill out your questionnaire. I says, Dad, I don't want to go to Notre Dame. He says, I didn't say you had to go to Notre Dame. I said, you have to fill the questionnaire out, fill it out, and send it back. So I sent it back. Then they sent me plane tickets, and I wasn't going to go on the trip. And my dad called me and said, I hear you got plane tickets, but you're not going on the trip. I said, that's right, I don't want to go to Notre Dame. He said, you don't have to go to Notre Dame, but you have to go on this trip. You have to do the right thing. This is the, the polite thing to do. So I go on the trip. Long story short, although I guess I've already made it long, I was sitting in Arab Prosegian's office, and I was drawn to him uh, as a leader, as a coach, as a person. And I said to myself, you know, I have to be out of my mind not to do this. Uh, I want to win a national championship, and I want to get a degree from Notre Dame. And just because my brother went there, I got to get past that. And I got past it, and that's how I wound up going in. My other choices were Boston College and North Carolina. All right, so you had a great career at Notre Dame, obviously won a national championship and um, got into coaching. So how quick was that transition? Did you, did you try and play beyond Notre Dame? And then what made you decide to stay with the game? 
Okay, so my, my plan was to go to law school. My two older brothers are lawyers, and that's what I wanted to do. And as I was giving up the game my senior year, I didn't get drafted. Uh, and there was like 15 rounds back then, so that just tells you how bad I was. <laughs> uh, I was on a Canadian football list. I didn't necessarily want to do that. And so as I was thinking about, okay, I'm going to take the law, law LSATs, I'm going to go to law school, I said, you know what, I really don't want to give up the game. And I started looking for coaching jobs. Uh, I really wanted to be a high school coach. There was no high school coaching jobs around, although there, there was one I may have had a chance uh, at. And then I started looking at the college thing. One thing led to another, and I wound up being a grad assistant at the University of Maine for the 1975 season. Yeah, so start as a grad assistant. That's still a path that many coaches take today. Do you think, looking back to the 70s when you started, is the grind to get to a high-profile position similar with coaches today where, you know, like you did, you kind of have to start as a GA, grind your way up, or have there been shortcuts either back then or that have developed now? That's a great question. I, I don't think anything's really changed. And as crazy as this sounds, you know, most of us that got into coaching in my generation, we were paycheck to paycheck people, right? We were like cops and firefighters. I mean, we never ever thought that we'd have a lot of money. And it's really funny now, Alex, we are seeing the first generation of young coaches that can absolutely think that they are going to be millionaires and they're they're going to have very little student debt, if any, if they played uh, football in college and were on scholarships. So it's a different financial uh, kind of job. But I, don't th- I still don't think there's any shortcuts. I think you still have to grind as a GA, go maybe to a smaller school, and then and work your way up. Have you seen Last Chance U ever on Netflix? I've seen a couple years of it. So those coaches that work at the community colleges, some of the lower-level ones, are literally getting paid nothing, and they're staying in the dorms. Like I've always thought you know, it's just an insane thing to do, but it kind of shows what people are willing to do to get into the profession. And it, 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 no doubt about the profession, but it's actually changed the players – more than it's changed the coaches because the the again past generations we were kind of all this in this together by way of example Ira Parsegian who was our head coach at Notre Dame there was a school rule he couldn't make more money than the highest paid professor oh wow okay Bo Schembecker leaves Miami of Ohio goes to Michigan and his wife Millie says Bo what are they paying you he says I don't know multiply my first check by 12 <laughs> he didn't even ask Okay, so since the salaries have exploded, now the players are looking at this saying, it's billions of dollars, where's our cut? Whereas my generation, we kind of all were paycheck to paycheck, players and coaches. And that, I think it's changed the outlook of the players towards the game. I mean, it's unheard of now that a coach would be beholden to a professor salary or some sort of academic right. salary. That's right. crazy. I uh, did not know that, but that's a cool fact. Um so you end up, you know, eventually after your days at, at uh, as a GA and then move on to Eastern Michigan, you end up in Colorado where you were uh, in Boulder for quite a bit. I feel like Boulder, Colorado is a pretty fun place to spend your 30s as a young adult. Yeah, no doubt. We had a blast living there, but, you know, I worked for Bill McCartney, who's in the Hall of Fame now. He was one of Bo's assistants. I was at Eastern Michigan, so we used to recruit the same areas, not the same players, but I was at Eastern Michigan. He was at Michigan. We, we built up a friendship, and he said to me, if I ever get a job, I'm going to ask you to come with me. Well, he got the Colorado job, and he asked me. But, Alex, it was nine years. Uh, we won uh, two games, three games, one game our third year. The athletic director came into Bill's office and put a bunch of papers on his desk, and Bill thought he was getting fired. It was an extension, and we ultimately won the national championship. But the reason I say that is it's a, it, it's – it's like working for Urban Meyer, working for Nick Saban, working for the great coaches now. If you pay attention, it's a clinic every day. You know, and the one thing I miss, even in this business, uh, there's not any men- mentoring. You know, you don't see older producers necessarily mentoring young producers. You don't see older talent necessarily mentoring young talent, whereas coaching is all about mentoring if you're not mentoring if you're not spending time with your players and if you're not mentoring young coaches you're probably not in coaching because that's all that goes on i mean it's no coincidence you see some of the 
staffs that even legendary coaches like Urban were on back at their Bowling Green days and how all these coaches kind of rise through the ranks and, and you look back 20 years ago, same thing with the Iowa staffs back when Ference was an assistant. It's, it's, it's uh, to your point, kind of crazy how things come full circle. And um, sticking with your Colorado days, like you said, had some great teams there, won a national title. Uh, you guys played Illinois in 1990. <laughs> I wanted to bring it up because Howard, yeah, Howard Griffith, obviously, the guy, your, your running mate here for 12-plus uh, years, uh, had a good game against Colorado when they, when they beat you guys in 1990. What was the first thing you said to Howard when you realized you were working together, and was it related to that game? That wasn't related to no, that game? Was it related to the game the first time you talked to him? Did you have some sort of... Uh, you know, recollection, reflective moment. I, I never connected the dots. In fact, Alex, I can't tell you when I did connect the dots, but but I know this. It was what what connected it for me was I we were watching footage of that game when he when Howard scored the winning touchdown, and he took his hat off and his helmet off rather. And well, he didn't get a penalty and cost him the game. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> the rule wasn't it wasn't a rule uh, then, but. Uh, you know, I, I just didn't connect it right away. I, the first time I met Howard, me, him, Dave Refson, and Quentin Carter went out to lunch, and I don't, I don't think I even, well, I obviously didn't know much about Howard's background uh, back then. But we wound up, we tied Stanford the first game of the year. Uh, I'm sorry, we tied Tennessee in a kickoff classic. Then we, we tied, uh, no, we beat Stanford the second game, the last play of the game, and then we lost to Howard's Illinois. We were 1-1-1 one, one, and, one, right. and won a national championship. Yeah, I, I've looked back at that season before, um, just seeing those Illinois highlights a lot, and it's pretty crazy that you know a team that starts 1-1-1 one, one, one can go on to win the national title, and, and even with a tie, like that's kind of foreign to me to see that in college football with uh, ties on the record. Uh, you moved on after Colorado uh, to Vanderbilt and LSU, two very different schools. Uh, with different pressures, obviously. And, you know, now that you kind of bounced around a little bit at this point, and, and we'll get into your Indiana days in just a moment, how do you compare the pressures and the environments of some of the different college jobs you had, and, and what did you kind of take from each one, especially going into a, a massive job like LSU? Well, I would have to start with Vanderbilt. Uh I was uh, so impressed with the roster that we inherited uh, of the balance that the players had, you know, the academic and the athletic balance. And so there were some wonderful, wonderful people there when I got there. Then we recruited some really good players. In fact, several of them went on to the NFL. So I knew we could really recruit even at a place that had some academic restrictions. LSU is an entirely different situation. You are, you know, the team in the state. Uh, there's a million team owners. Everybody has a piece. If you lose a game, and I think this is one of the things that separates the SEC from the Big Ten, when you lose a game at LSU and you're a fan, you have a hard time going to work Monday. And if you go to work Monday uh, and you don't call in sick because you lost, you're probably not very productive at work. So it's all consuming. I, I would say the pressure at LSU is that you feel responsible for literally millions of people's happiness. And uh, so, uh, you know, you just didn't want to disappoint people. You know, it just, I mean, they, they just, they're so passionate, it, it's hard to measure. And then you've got the political side of it, the board members, donors, and, donors, and the, the president wants to be the team owner, and he comes in the locker room, and the chancellor. You have all those things. But what I appreciated the most was, was the passion of people. Most of them probably never inside a classroom at LSU, but, but they were very loyal Louisiana people. It was, it's overwhelming, the responsibility that you feel. We'll talk about your XFL stint in just a second because I have all kinds of questions about that. Um, but I want to get into Indiana and kind of contrast that with what you just mentioned with LSU. Indiana's similar in a way with their passion for basketball, right? I mean, being a basketball school, especially when you were there, uh, I would compare that fandom to, you know, maybe not quite in the level of live or die that some LSU fans are. I don't want any Indiana fans getting offended, but. Uh, like you said, people calling the sick to uh, work on Mondays, that's, that's a whole other level. But at Indiana, how did you adjust, you know, knowing that football does not have the pedigree that basketball has? 
Well, that wasn't much of an adjustment because I think it's part of the gig, right? I mean, you go there knowing. You know, our my my biggest problem at Indiana, I think it's a wonderful place, is I, I say this and I hope nobody takes offense to it. I had three ADs and three presidents in three years and six mission statements. And so we we just never had we never got our footing. And uh, you know, Mike McNeely hired me who was on the staff with me at Colorado. In fact, he was he was single when he was uh, when we were at Colorado together. I was married and had a child and he used to babysit my daughter. We were very very close. He hires me in January. He gets fired in October. Every hire you want to start as a head coach with your right AD. With, with the guy who, you know, is is you're going to work with and all that. So, I never really got my footing there. Uh, there was a lot of transition. I think what they're doing now is extraordinary, but I do think it reinforces what I felt. I thought it was going to take 10 years at Indiana when I was there. That didn't. Th- I'm not saying I thought I could lose for nine. I'm just saying I, I thought to get that thing on solid footing was going to be 10 years. And that's what it is. You look at Kevin Wilson and you look at Tom Allen, two really, really good coaches. Now, Kevin was a little bit like me. Maybe he wasn't the right personality fit. Tom is the right personality fit. So me and Kevin could send the same message to the administration and be abrasive, and Tom Allen could say the same message and it be received because he's not abrasive. And I told Tom this when he and I talked. I said, you have an advantage over Kevin and I because the way you'll present your message. But it's it's what now? It's nine years between the two of them? And I got to tell you, Tom Allen's a candidate for Coach of the Year. He's done unbelievable things there. So he can be done there. But to your original question, you know basketball culturally has to succeed. But the coaches nowadays, Alex, have a, have an opportunity, the football coaches now have an opportunity to, to solve that mystery because you have enough money now right. to support both football and basketball. When I was there and people before me, when budgets got tough, the money had to go to basketball because you had a culturally you had to be good in basketball. You didn't have to be good in football. Right. We see it when we go every year now for the tour. There's always something new popping up. First, it was the end zone. Then it was the locker room this past year. It's uh, the improvements are obvious, and, and you know, like you said, paying off on the field um, and the commitment to stability has been has been uh, paying off big time for sure. Yeah, like you said, uh, big game this weekend. I'm curious to see. How they do against Michigan, but we'll get into that later. Um, before we get into present day football, I have to ask about the XFL because when I see these leagues pop up, whether it's the second iteration of the XFL or the AAF last year, and they get these big name coaches to come back, and they get you know either former college or pro coaches, I, I wonder what goes through the coaches' minds that that draws them to those jobs. Is it just a love of football? Is it the opportunity and, and and the appeal of getting in at the ground floor. Why did you get into the XFL, and was there a dose of skepticism going in? Well, you go where you wanted, right? So they recruited me to come to one of their franchises. I originally was going to have Chicago until uh, they called me and said, said, Dick Butkus wants to coach the team. You no longer have Chicago. <laughs> and they gave me a choice between Memphis, Birmingham, and New York, and I, I, I took Birmingham. Uh, so I went there because because they wanted me. What I enjoyed about it is, as much as I love the student athlete, the pressure about graduating everybody at at Vanderbilt and graduating more than anyone ever has done at LSU, which we did. You know, there was no academic pressure. It was an older guy. I never coach older guys. Some of the guys kids came to practice. I, that was a, that was neat for me. We met at 10 o'clock in the morning and had breakfast together. Nobody was cutting class. And, you know, it's it's Jerry, it's Joe, it's, it's, it's a different level of um, friendship. It's a different, it's a business level. Cutting people was awful. Mm-hmm. The fr- after first training camp, bring, because I wasn't going to let the director player personnel do it. I was going to do it myself. That was awful. So every experience we had at the XFL for me was a learning experience, and I loved it. The one thing I tried to get done, and I think you're going to see it get done now, I had a player in Birmingham, a high school player, didn't want to go to college. I don't think he would have been initially eligible. I really thought he had a chance to play, and I wanted the XFL to be 
what Mary Sue Coleman, who was the president at Iowa and the president of Michigan at one time, she would say, you know, why do you have to go to college to play uh, professional basketball? Why do you have to go to college to play professional football? And I think she was right. Now, basketball is probably going to change the rules again, but playing one year in college really isn't going to college. So they've semi-resolved that. But Alex, why can't a football player, why can't Jadavian Clowney go and play football after his sophomore year? He could have made $10 million that year. And so I think the XFL serves a purpose now. It'll allow high school players that can develop into eventually NFL players, and I think you'll see freshmen and sophomores leaving college to play in the XFL if they can make the league going, and I think that's a good deal. I think that's a good thing. I don't think you should have to stay in college three or four years to play professional football. Yeah, and the 2001 version of the XFL that you coached in was portrayed as kind of the Wild West. I don't know if this new iteration will be the same, but was the theatrical side of it and was how some of the characters were played up did that fit your experience with the actual men that you were in the locker room with we were a little different in fact i was accused by the remember he hate me yeah he I, hate me. I i was accused because nobody put nicknames on their backs <laughs> in birmingham because i it was regional so i had a bunch of southern kids yeah i had lsu players that had played for me and they didn't want they they didn't want a nickname on their back. So the league office calls me and says, "Why are you doing this?" I said, "I'm not doing anything." I said, "I haven't told them anything." I said, "Send me a letter. I'll put it in the locker room if you don't believe me." <laughs> I put the letter in the locker room. You can put whatever you want in the back of your jerseys. They wanted their names, and I so I had a pretty conservative group. The microphones. I mean, it was nine o'clock in the morning, and and they mic'd you up, and you, it could be a night game. I mean, everything you said. I can remember we were playing out in the new. Uh, the new uh, San Francisco Giants Stadium when it first opened up. Both teams were on one sideline. Casey Weldon was my quarterback. And he got hurt, and he came over to me, and he, he, he motioned to me to cover up my microphone so we could have a conversation yeah. of what was, wrong with, what was wrong with him and what kind of injury he had. It was pretty funny. The microphones were crazy. Bubba Cam, which I, is the steady cam on the field during the game, was was something neat that I thought, and and then the, the, what's the big camera? The sky cam, sky cam. Yeah. So both those camera ideas came from the XFL. Yeah, I mean, just don't let it get too tempting to go back. You know, we we need you around here <laughs> at the network. So we'll see how the second XFL 2.0 works out. Right. Um, speaking of uh, being here at the network, you after your coaching career got in the TV space, started at ESPN, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Right. So. How did you start getting into the TV space, and how did your time at ESPN set the table for you to make the jump to BTN when the launch happened in 07? Okay, so my plan was this. My plan was to coach and then get into the media business, and my my plan that went south was to go to Indiana, stay there a long time, that being our last, uh, our last stop. Bill Mallory was the winningest coach in Indiana history with 69 wins. I wanted to stay a long time, and I wanted to, when I was done coaching, open up a restaurant and do media. So that long term, long time turned into three years, three seasons. It wasn't even three complete years. And so then, you know, I got an agent and started auditioning. Actually, when I when I left LSU, a couple agents called me and said, you know, we think you could do this and all that. So. I opened up a restaurant. I had a restaurant in Baton Rouge that I was part owner of and learned a little bit about, well, I actually learned a lot about the restaurant business. And then when we came to Bloomington, I was still coaching. My wife, Terry, actually opened up the restaurant. She built it. She did everything. Damn near killed her. Uh, and then when I got out of coaching, I got fired one day and I was in the kitchen the next morning and uh, started to get some feelers with media and all that, ESPN, and then than Big Ten Network. Yeah, I'm going to get into your restaurant excursions in, in just a little bit. Um, but did you have any skepticism, kind of similar to the XFL, with it being a new thing and, and Big Ten Network being a new thing? Do you have any apprehension about starting something here? How are you pitched into joining the first conference network? Okay, so when I I wanted something more than just the fall. I, I and and so. I was offered the Big Ten noon game, so I could have done that. But that was basically, you know, was, that was basically being in the booth during the game, uh, during the season, and then that was it. Whereas 
the Big Ten Network was definitely studio. I mean, they made that very clear that there was no there was no opportunities in the game. But we talked about spring practice. We talked about recruiting, and so I didn't think about the newness of it. I just you know, I guess I never think like that. In fact, Urban asked me why I would take some of the coaching jobs I took. He always asked me that. Uh, I never thought of any of that, you know, whether it was going to work, whether it wasn't going to work. I just said, you know what, this is a job that I can do year-round, and that's what I want. I want to be involved with football year-round. And so I jumped at it both feet. All right. Brought up your restaurant. Had one at LSU. Brought up the one in, in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, D'Angelo's. I've been there a couple times. And you've kind of mixed this passion for food now into your emerging social media game, which I'm going to give you props for. It's very good, you know, for a former coach that doesn't necessarily have to get into social media if he doesn't want to. So you started putting out cooking videos on social media, some, some recipes for your followers and the fans out there. How did you decide to diversify your social media game and, and make food a part of uh, what you're putting out on those platforms? Well, I enjoy both, right? I enjoy food, and I enjoy social media. I, I think we're in a crisis here. In fact, I'm thinking about what I want to say about it on Saturday's tailgate show because of what's happened uh, to Sean Clifford lately uh, and people threatening him and so on and so forth, how we should deal with this issue. So I think I think social media is really cool. I think there's a lot to it. I think it can be as positive as it can be negative, and I'm hoping the next generation does a better job than than our generation right now. And so off-season, not much football going on, no spring practice. I I started putting together a family cookbook, a family and friends cookbook, three or four years ago, not to sell, just to distribute to family and friends. Uh, And so one of the ways I thought it would motivate me if I made a commitment to do these cooking videos once a week it would keep me active during the off season and I would enjoy doing it I think yesterday I posted number 41 in a row uh, I'm coming down to some real crunch time here I'm trying to I'm trying to trying to keep it going but it was just my enjoyment of social media and my and my love for cooking and it seemed like it was a good fit during the off season yeah it's been fun to you know to remember you're still a part of the network in the springtime when you know basketball's wrapping up and I don't see you around here very often and then your video pops up and uh, it's like oh yeah Jerry's coming back in a, <laughs> a couple weeks so so that's been good to see uh, definitely give Jerry a follow if you don't already and see some of his recipes and football analysis which has also been taking off you know not only on TV but on social media due to this new segment you've been doing with Urban Meyer we talked about Urban a little bit so far in your relationship with him but uh, this is the first year that He's been off the sidelines and has been a part of the media with us here at Fox BTN. And you guys do a weekly segment that is pretty much spread throughout the entire week. So he's on our social media platforms and on our air every day with you, breaking down film and uh, just analyzing the game of football in really kind of a groundbreaking way that we haven't had here before. So how did this segment come together? And are you surprised that it has gone as smoothly as it has? Because everybody... Internally and externally, we see it all the time, and the um, feedback we get from fans on social media, how great this segment is and how informative it is. So how did it come together, and are you uh, pleased with how it, is, how it has turned out? I forget the first conversation, how, how it all happened. Uh, Mark Halsey and I were talking about it months and months ago, uh, and Mark used the the John Gruden series as kind of the model and he wanted the conversation between the two of us Uh, uh, Urban's humility the way he has totally embraced this thing he's hard to contain once you get him going Uh, and oftentimes I just barely make my plane because he just can't get enough of it we go over it and over and over it and I'm, you know, and, and I'm in a different role, and I enjoy that. I'm, you know, obviously, all I want to do is set Urban up so that what the audience sees is his knowledge and something they can't get anywhere else. And so I spend my my work is we we usually take my money. My work is Sunday. I, it's eleven hours for me to get those four segments ready. And so I do the work 
on Sunday. Urban does the work on Monday. He's very enthusiastic about it. I think this. I, I think people can see what a great teacher he is. You know, he just has a way of explaining things. And, uh, you know, I think he has an extraordinary concept. Alex, you'd be surprised how many head coaches, you know, and this isn't a negative. It's just sometimes the path they have taken. How many head coaches don't really know both sides of the ball, line play, perimeter play. There's not many that know it like Urban knows. I was going to say, it surprised me because, like you said, some head coaches don't have a, as deep understanding as he does, but his ability to convey it to an audience that knowledge is is you know far inferior to, to what he knows, and, and he can get these principles across to the average fan. I think that's the feedback we've seen the most is that, wow, this guy is explaining football, which is an incredibly complex game if, if you... Uh, if you want to make it that way, in a way that, you know, you, obviously not you, but the average Joe out there like me, somebody who watches football but can't necessarily pick out the concepts like he can, he does it incredibly. And, and um, does he actually enjoy, like you said, he enjoys the process. Does he enjoy the media side of things, do you think, kind of seeing how he goes through his weekly obligations? You know, Urban's, Urban's like a typical coach, and I think this might come through with me, Howard, and Rever as well. Uh, coaching is such a social profession. I mean, you are with people hours and hours and hours, and you're ex- you're you're exposed your strengths and your weaknesses. And the thing that we all love about this business, when you have our backgrounds, meaning me and Urban, is if you get with the right people, you love it. You know what what people used to say about coaching is is if you if you were observing a coach. You couldn't tell if he was at work or, or if he was at play, right? So you look at the big noon, right? You got Liner, you got Rob Stone, you got Reggie, you got another uh, 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 name. Uh, Brady. Brady. Yep. You know, he loves being around those people because it's like having a, it's like being in the staff room. It's like, it's like the, the, the locker room. And so that, that's what he's enjoying, you know, and, I, and obviously there's, there's not the same kind of pressure but uh, that's what surprised me too though is that it looks like he's actually enjoying it like, he is when I don't remember much from when he was on uh, ESPN before he got to Ohio State he was doing games year. though yeah and it just didn't come across the same way and, and the genuine enjoyment is coming across and, and uh, you know it's reflected in like I said his very polished work that he's put out for us and, and you made a point about you know he knows so much football you know it's not really what, what the teacher knows, right? It's what the teacher can explain mm-hmm. to his or her students, right? And he, he has the ability to explain what he thinks the audience can absorb at a basic level. And if we keep doing these, you know, if this was a, if this was a, like once in a while we'll do something and he'll turn and say, graduate, this is graduate school. Like we did the one when he started talking about uh, Phil Parker's defense and, you know, all these reads and everything else. And and we kept saying, this is grad school, this is grad school, because we wanted the audience to know that this is a little different than what we did the last couple weeks. Yeah, it's been fun to watch and uh, looking forward to seeing what you guys got the rest of the year and, and maybe beyond if he doesn't get, get back into coaching and sticks with us here. Um, before we wrap up, Jerry, I want to talk about his former program, the Ohio State Buckeyes, and their big game coming up against Penn State. And you'll be there for Big Ten Tailgate. Urban will be there for the Big Noon Kickoff Show. All kinds of media uh, hype for this one, and rightfully so. So first off, how does this Ohio State team, undefeated, blowing everybody out. How do they stack up to previous dominant teams you've seen from your time covering the Big Ten? i got to tell you, Alex, it has to be one of the best, if not the best. And I'm not real good at remembering other teams and and, 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 and that kind of question that you ask. But, I, you know, I think this could be as good as any of them that won the national, you know, the one that won the national championship, the one that has not lost to Michigan and all the things that Ohio State does. This is this is up there. This team has a new energy because it has a new leader. Young people like new things. Urban's a grinder. I don't think Ryan Day is a grinder. Now, grinders usually do it over the long haul. Sometimes non-grinders don't. And so this is going to be really interesting as we go forward. But I think this team is playing with such energy because they they really find the change refreshing. That doesn't mean 
anything negative about ur- urban. It's just young people like change, and this is a change that's just struck a chord, if you will. How does Penn State make it a game, and do you think they can beat the Buckeyes? Okay, so the, one of the surprising things to me as we get ready for this game is before the season, I would have thought these would have been fairly evenly matched teams. And I thought for sure, if you'd have said to me back in August, will Penn State have the advantage in any area when they play Ohio State? I would have said yes, but I don't know which, but we'll have to wait and see how it plays. I don't see any area right now where where Penn State has the advantage going into the game. I think the fact that Chase Young is back and the fact that they can rush uh, Clifford with four and they can spy Clifford with a linebacker because they don't have to rush five makes all the difference in the world. So I think Chase Young coming back has just added to what I think could be one-sided. I think an early burst of energy. I, I think that they'll be... They were pretty conservative. Ohio State was pretty conservative early in the Wisconsin game. I see them freewheeling early because I think Penn State's confidence is shaken. I think it's shaken against Ohio State. I think if Ohio State comes out strong, it, 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 it could be a one-sided game. All right, last question, Jerry. How's your energy holding up? You know, we're toward the end of a long season, and you've been doing these urban analysis pieces, going to Columbus every week, right, to shoot these pretty mm-hmm. much. Sometimes it deviates a little bit, but you're going to Columbus every week, and you got Chicago for the studio shows, and then you got BTN Tailgate shows, which is the first year they've done a show every week at a different campus. So uh, you doing all right? I'm doing all right. You know, I have to tell you, tailgates sometimes hanging with the younger folks on Thursday and Friday nights mm-hmm. a challenge, but most weeks I'm up to it. I mean, you got a little offended when I when I compared you in the same age bracket as my grandfather when you ran into him uh, in yeah. Champagne. How, how how remind me how old he is? Uh, he's gonna be mad if I don't know his exact age. I think he's eighty two. Right. You're not quite up there yet. Oh, duh, got it. No, I won't make you reveal no, your age on no. on the air here. But but. but but like your grandfather can say to me, you know, don't make fun of my age because there's no guarantee that you'll get there. <laughs> and that's what I tell Howard and Revson when they start making fun of my age. I said, that you, you make fun of me. There's no guarantee you're going to make it this long. On that lighthearted note, Jerry, we'll end it right there. I hope I make it to where you're at, you know, you with go. the same energy and, and vigor that you have. And I appreciate you sitting down and uh, taking some time to get into your background with me. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate you having me. All right. All right, thanks once again to Jerry for joining me. Really interesting uh, personality who, if you dig in, has a a lot of football knowledge and stories to share from a lifetime in the sport. So, uh, you know, I've got to know Jerry well over the years, especially on those long bus rides in the summer when we go on the BTN bus tour at all the campuses. So it was cool to pick his brain in an official setting for the, the show. So thanks again to him. Turning it over now to to our uh, BTN researcher, Harold Shelton. He's on the show pretty much every week during the football and basketball season, generously donating his time to fill us in on the goings-on in Big Ten football and basketball. Really busy this time of year, so I especially appreciate his time and services when the seasons overlap. And we talk quite a bit of Big Ten football and Big Ten basketball close out the show as well. He goes behind the numbers, the matchups, and gets into everything you need to know about the biggest games and matchups in the conference. So, kick it over to Harold. And the segment we call Stathead starts right now. All right, back at it with Harold Shelton for our weekly Stathead segment. H, the race was shook up last weekend. We won't talk too much about last weekend's games, but Iowa beating Minnesota was significant. So before we even dive into the implications and shuffling of the rankings, how you holding up, man? Hey, it's, it's grind time right now. You know, we got a couple more weeks. We got holiday season coming up. We got, you know, the basketball crossover, all the holiday tournaments coming up. It's, it's definitely a grind, but we're getting close to the end, so it's getting exciting. It's our duty to inform the listener, and that's what we'll do. You know, we'll put our head down and grind Absolutely. through it. All right, so let's get into it. Uh, playoff rankings came out for the third time in 2019 this past Tuesday so we'll start there no big surprises really uh, at the top 
you know, Ohio State stayed put number two, but did you have any issues with how the rest of the rankings shook out? Uh, no change in the top seven, which I guess isn't really a surprise. You know, all those teams won and, and won handily for the most part. Uh, you know, Georgia had, probably had the best win uh, beating Auburn on, on the road. Uh, the Alabama thing's a little interesting, but I guess they're taking a wait-and-see approach with Bama with Tua being out. I mm-hmm. guess they they figured they didn't need to drop them right away. I guess you can look and see how they look against Auburn before doing that, which is fine. Uh, 8, 9, and 10 I thought was very interesting. Uh, Minnesota with the loss at Iowa dropped two spots, which allowed Penn State to move up a spot. Oklahoma with the crazy comeback against Baylor moved them up a spot as well. Um, I thought it was interesting that Penn State and Minnesota have the same record. I don't think one is unequivocally better than the other. Uh, So you would think head-to-head would matter in this situation. But the fact is the committee, again, as we talked about last week, I still don't think they buy Minnesota. I thought they thought that was a one-off performance. And they looked and put Penn State – know ahead of them based off of them winning in Iowa City and Minnesota losing in Iowa City and it's like I don't see how that makes sense considering the head-to-head matchup literally happened less than two weeks ago yeah Uh, and we saw a Minnesota team that led the entire game for the most part and never trailed somehow they're two spots behind in the Lions and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me do you think Penn State and Minnesota both control their playoff destiny or things need to happen for either of them to win out and make a run at top four uh i have no doubt a 12 and 1 penn state champ would get in um that would include beating ohio state in columbus that would include beating wisconsin or minnesota most likely in indianapolis to go along with the win over michigan the win over iowa i mm-hmm. think that that resume would be very very strong uh minnesota you know, if that's any other team in the West, if that's the Iowa, if that's Wisconsin, it would be a no-brainer. It should still be a no-brainer. But the fact that we're even asking this question just kind of goes to show the the brand bias that is yep. out there. But if you consider that, you know, they'd have a win over Penn State, a win over Wisconsin, a win over either Ohio State or Penn State in Indy, I think that should be more than enough as a 12-1 and Big Ten champ. So I would say – even though these rankings, you know, there's a little talk about it now. If these teams take care of business, they should both be in. We don't have the clarity that we had last year um, at this point with, I think, Northwestern had already clinched by now last year. Uh, the indie stage has not been set yet. So heading into this weekend, what are some clinching scenarios or things you're looking for to set the table for the Big Ten title game? So if Ohio State wins, you know, in Columbus this week against Penn State, they will be the champ no matter what happens in Ann Arbor the following week. Yep. Uh, if Penn State you know, pulls off the upset, then all they would have to do is beat Rutgers the following week at home, and then they'd be punching their ticket to Indy. Uh, just pretty cut and dry between those two teams. You could pretty much say that this game is for the title. Yep. Uh, no offense to Rutgers, but I'd be very, very surprised if they win in the state college and won that game next week. Put up the most points against Ohio State last week than any team you Yes, they right? did. But yes, you're right. Did. I do not see it happening. Yeah, I'd, I'd be very, very surprised. It is college football. Weird stuff happens, but I'd be very surprised. Um, as for the West, uh, which is pretty much Minnesota and Wisconsin, but the Illini are still mathematically alive. Iowa, too, right? I was not. I was not. Okay. I was not, but Illinois is mathematically alive. Um, if the Illini were to win out, have Minnesota and Wisconsin both lose this week, and then to Minnesota Wisconsin, and Purdue respectively, right? And then Wisconsin beats Beat Minnesota, Minnesota in the finale. The Illini would be the team in Indianapolis. Yeah, you don't uh, anticipate that sentence being a real thing in late November, but, but especially this are. year. But here we are. So Illinois is uh, mathematically alive. It would take. Two shocking results this weekend with Northwestern and Purdue. We can get into those matchups a little later. Uh, I don't see that happening. Right. But, but yeah, yeah, you got some interesting... Uh, I mean, the easiest one is if Minnesota beats Northwestern and Wisconsin loses to Purdue, then Minnesota yep. punches their ticket. If Wisconsin wins on Saturday, then that game in Minneapolis between Wisconsin and Minnesota will decide the West. Right. So, a lot to look out for this weekend. Should be fun. Let's start at the top with Ohio State and Penn State. Uh, talk with Jerry a little bit about it on this very couch earlier today. 
comfy couch. It is very comfy. I'm getting positive yeah. feedback about this couch. Yes. So I'm, well done by you. Thank you. Actually, I have to give the credit to uh, Jordan, our other producer. But, right, uh, that works. You know, I'll, I'll take half the credit at least. So you know, as we're we're sitting here and relaxing, how do you see this game playing out against between Ohio State and Penn State? I think Ohio State is uh, you know quite the favorite. <clears throat> Not too many people I've talked to think that Penn State can win this game, but the last couple of years have been decided by uh, one point apiece, and the one before that was three points, I believe. So very close series. Do you think this one will be in that neighborhood? Um, it is the closest series uh, in the country over the last three years. You know, the three games decided by a total of five points, with every game being three points or fewer. Um, the fact that even going back before that, the 2014 game in State College, you know, you needed OT to win that game. So the fact that James Franklin's 1-4 and four against Ohio State could easily be 4-1 and one in the other direction. Right. Uh, but the last two years, fourth quarter has been a big, big problem. Uh, JT Barrett, Dwayne Haskins won a combined 20 of 23 in the fourth quarter the last two years. Uh, Penn State's secondary is still a problem this year, as we've seen with Peyton Ramsey and Tanner Morgan both throwing for over 300 yards against them the last two weeks. Uh, I'd be really, really surprised if this game is as close as the other two. Uh, I do think they have a chance to get to Justin Fields. Uh, he d- still has a tendency of holding on the ball too long, takes some sacks that he doesn't need to take. Um, so maybe it's similar to the Wisconsin game where it's close-ish for two and a half quarters and then the offense gets in gear. Uh, I kind of see something playing out like that. I think Ohio State wins comfortably. When does the concern set in now with Ohio State playing Penn State this weekend, Michigan the next weekend, and depending on how things play out, most likely the Big Ten uh, West Division champ the following weekend and then, you know, potentially a, a college football playoff opponent after that. When does the concern set in that Ohio State has not played the big game yet? Is that something that, you know, you worry about as somebody who looks at the stats or is that overblown? Uh, I think there's something to be said for it. I just don't know if any team in this league can provide that four-quarter game that we keep expecting. Um, I believe it was J.K. Dobbins who said it the other week in response to a media question mm-hmm. about how, you know, now that you're done with Maryland and Rutgers, you can, you know, play in Penn State and Michigan, and you can expect, you know, some fourth quarter games there. Like, how will you guys react? And he kind of says, well, why do they have to be fourth quarter games? Right. And to his point, I mean, not they don't necessarily have to be. We kind of thought Wisconsin would be a four quarter game, and it certainly was not. Um, you know, the fact that. It is interesting, though, we haven't seen Justin Fields, you know. Sweat. Get, yeah, haven't seen him sweat, you know, barely played in the fourth quarters. You know, what does happen if it's a, a one-possession game going into the fourth? You know, we haven't seen him, you know, with any adversity yet. You know, what happens if, you know, he throws a pick in a big spot or, you know, gets you know gets hit, sack fumble. You know, what happens if Ohio State's defense busts a coverage and, no, a KJ Hamler or a Nico Collins breaks free. We just haven't seen those kind of things, so we don't know how to re- how they'll react. We haven't seen Ryan Day in these spots, so it's a lot of questions that I think need answers. But I don't know if we're going to see them uh, from a Big Ten opponent. It might not be until the playoff if they get there. Yeah, I'm glad like we're done messing around because now basically every game is a hypothetical playoff game, postseason game for Ohio State just with the game against Penn State this weekend, the game the following weekend during rivalry week, the champ game, which could be, you know, um, <clears throat> just their final hurdle before the playoff. It's going to be fun to see them get pushed a little bit. Yeah, so, for sure. Looking forward to it. Uh, the other game coming up this weekend that I'm looking forward to is the Michigan-Indiana game. Uh, talk about it every week on this podcast since Indiana has kind of announced themselves as a legitimate program under Tom Allen. They've kind of arrived this year finally, and they have another chance after pushing Penn State last weekend to make a statement against Michigan. So how do you see that one playing out? Is this finally the week where Indiana gets over that hump, especially with Michigan having a bigger game from the fan point of view and from you know the historical program point of view from that perspective the following week? Uh, it does seem like a perfect spot for Indiana to do it. 
Uh, you know, Michigan coming off the, the blowout win over Michigan State and everybody telling them how good they are and, you know, how they found their stride since the second half of the Penn State game and looking ahead to Ohio State. Um, it does set up well for Indiana. The last two times they've played in Bloomington, both have gone to overtime. You know, Jake Rudock needed a, a masterful performance in 2015, mm-hmm. and, you know, they barely survived in 2017 as well. Uh, you know, Ramsey has had success against them. Stevie Scott has had success against them. It'll be really interesting to see. Hopefully, Watt Fillier can play in that game. You know, he was knocked out of the Penn State game, you know, after taking a couple hits to the helmet. Um, not sure if he's going to play or not. You know, one of the best receivers in the Big Ten. If he's missing against this Michigan defense, that could be a problem. But they've got a lot of weapons. Um, so I think, you know, Indiana's offense should be able to move the ball against them. It's just a matter if they could stop Michigan from running it. Um, again, that's the last piece for this Indiana team. They have not been able to get that marquee win, that signature win. And especially against Michigan and Ohio State, you know, they've lost 25 straight to Ohio State. They've lost 23 straight to Michigan. They played a lot of these games <laughs> yeah. really, really close. And for whatever reason, they just haven't been able to get over the hump. This could be the time where it happens. Kind of reminds me of the game a couple of years ago when Michigan went to Purdue. And Purdue was kind of the upstart program. It was Jeff Brom's first year, so that comparison is a little off. But I just remember the hype being kind of similar leading into that one. And that one was like an early season game as well. So... Stakes are different. It'll get darker a little earlier there. It'll have that late afternoon kind of glow and then turn into a, a night game. I'm looking forward to it. So it uh, should be fun, especially to see if you know Michigan State's going to be caught napping a little bit. I don't think they will be. They've looked sharp, but uh, we'll have to see. Um, any more football you want to talk before we switch to basketball? Because there's uh, you know a couple other games. I know we got Illinois-Iowa we could touch on briefly before we switch it over to hoops. I'm curious in that one to see if Iowa coming off a big win, kind of the the uh, flip side of the Indiana game, if they can keep up that energy, especially, like you said, being eliminated from West contention. And then Illinois going in there after being humbled big time by Iowa last year, uh, 63-0. So that's one game I think we should touch on before switching over. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, <clears throat> Iowa definitely seemed to call a more aggressive game last week against Minnesota you know the fact that they were able to score touchdowns on their first three drives you know they really kind of you know asserted themselves and made Minnesota play catch up the whole game which is they which is what they didn't want to do uh the fact that they actually used you know freshmen on offense as their marquee players was uh good to see you know Tyler Goodson I thought probably should have been playing a lot more a lot earlier uh you he would get some spot duty here and there but he actually got his first start you know, doesn't it doesn't usually happen in Iowa. You know, it's been seven years since the true freshman started at running back, and so he looked really, really good. Tyrone Tracy's been a player for them at receiver. Um, you know, when Brandon Smith went down, we're kind of like, oh well, there goes the big play threat. But he emerges along mm-hmm. with Smith Marset, um, and that, that Iowa defense is really, really tough against the run. Uh, I think they can get after Brandon Peters a little bit. I mean, they got to Tanner Morgan six times last week. Right. AJ Epinesa starting to come on. So I think I, for Illinois to win that game, they're going to do what they've been doing, which is turn the ball over. I mean, getting takeaways yep. and, and scoring on defense. You know, the fact that, you know, they were down big to Michigan State. They gave up over 500 yards of offense, but, you know, they forced four turnovers. They scored on one of them. And they hit big players to Ramada Bebe. That's probably the formula again because I don't think they'll be able to necessarily stop Iowa. But you can make Nate Stanley make mistakes. We've seen him do that throughout his career. And so they just have to capitalize when that happens. Yeah, it's interesting to see how the defense can turn around a game kind of like Lovey did with the Bears. Uh, I think I saw a stat that Iowa does not have a defensive touchdown this year. Illinois is seven, I think. So, you know, it's one of those stats that can flip a game. And, and I, I wonder almost – how the motivation is going to play into this game. Uh, not that energy is going to be low on either side, but with Iowa, you know, kind of just biding their time here towards the end of the season. And Illinois playing for bold positioning, but having already reached that milestone that high last week, I'm just curious to see the the energy level at 11 a.m., you know, at Kinnick Stadium. After a big night game, the fans rushing the field it should be uh, should be intriguing to see who gets yeah, up for it. Senior day crowd too. You always wonder how 
you know, some guys come out really, really fired up, and other guys are kind of emotional, thinking about everything, and it takes them a little while to get going. So that could play an Illinois' advantage as well, especially Illinois coming off the bye. So they, you know, they had a week to get all of that right. stuff out about making the ball. They can reset. Iowa had to go right back from, you know, a top-10 win to, oh, we're playing Illinois. We beat these guys 63 nothing. We're at home. It should be fine. If they approach it like that, it could be an issue. Yep, so we'll see. Um, I guess I want to get your pick on which Big Ten West leader or top two team is likely to get upset this weekend or caught sleeping. Um, Tanner Morgan, still uncertain for still Minnesota. Uncertain. Uh, so that could be an issue going into Northwestern, another 11 a.m. kind of sleepy game and environment that teams have a hard time getting up for sometimes up there in Evanston. <clears throat> and... Wisconsin and Purdue with Purdue, I believe, putting Aiden O'Connell back out there, uh, quarterback. So what do you think as far as potential upsets there? I don't see it personally either way, but uh, we've seen crazier things this year for sure. Yeah, I'd be surprised if either one of those happened. I mean, we've been waiting all year for Northwestern to get one of these games, and each week it's kind of like, oh, well, we thought it might happen, but it didn't. And yeah, so. Maybe their offense getting some flow last week against UMass. You know, UMass obviously not good, but – Maybe seeing the ball, kind of like seeing the ball go in the hoop for basketball. I don't know if that will have an impact. We'll yeah, see. They've at least run the ball well the last two weeks, you know, whether it was Kyrick McGowan uh, against Purdue and then you had Evan Hall come out of nowhere and, you know, run for 220 and four touchdowns. I uh, don't know if that will necessarily happen again against Minnesota, but if Tanner Morgan can't go, maybe Northwestern loads up against the run, make, you know, a true freshman try to beat you. That, that could be a potential recipe. And as for Wisconsin and Purdue, I mean, each of the last two have been really, really close. Uh, obviously, triple OT win by Wisconsin uh, in West Lafayette last year and come from behind fashion. And even you know, a couple years ago in Madison, it was only an eight-point win. I think it was the lowest Wisconsin had scored uh, all year. Problem is, Purdue has an issue with run defense, and Jonathan Taylor loves running against Purdue. Yes. Uh, he's averaged 270 yards a game in his career against Purdue, so I wouldn't be shy to see him go off again. Purdue does still have a bowl to play for, though, correct? Yep, they are 4-6, so, so if they get this one, you get Indiana, Indiana, you can go back to the postseason for the third straight year. So love that carrot at the end of the stick, for sure. Uh, let's take it to hoops now before we wrap up. Still very early going here, and we sat here last week. I think it was the same. It was on Thursday, and it was before the Gavitt games, and we were saying, well, you know, if Ohio State and Purdue and Michigan State can perform well tonight, this non-conference slate could look a little bit different for the Big Ten. So Michigan State had a huge win at Seton Hall. Ohio State, probably an even bigger win, uh, more unexpected performance at least by blowing out Villanova, and Purdue was right there, and uh, we saw their late game struggles pop up again. But overall, two out of three from that one. And then Wisconsin won on Sunday convincingly against Marquette. So do you feel better now than we did a week ago? Where, where do you uh, think the conference sits relative to their peers in the Power Five? Uh, definitely think there's a, a better feel coming out of the Big Ten offices after uh, that Wednesday, Thursday. Because um, as we talked about, you know, Purdue, I think Purdue might have just lost to Marquette and we're like, oh, man. You know, and that's based off of everything else that had already happened with Iowa getting killed at DePaul. Yep. But the fact that Ohio State was able to go out and just absolutely pound Villanova from the word go, and then Michigan State was able to rally, you know, down five to win at Seton Hall late was key. Because again, if the if your best team is you know one of the best teams in the country starts out one and two, you're like, well, if they're the best team, I don't know about the rest of this league. Right. And so now you at least have, once with Ohio State's emergence, you at least have three top ten teams. And it might not have the depth that it's had in years past, but you can at least tout those three teams and kind of control the narrative that way if they continue to win. And shout out to Penn State. Penn State with a nice win at Georgetown as well on the road. Um, You know, normally we're kind of waiting for Penn State to kind of stub their toe. That has not happened as of yet. Hopefully it doesn't happen at all. Uh, Lamar Stevens looks like a pro, um, you know, just complete dominant performance the other night. So that was a definitely a, a nice win as well. And Northwestern beating Providence, but then losing to Merrimack and, I can't and figure Radford. That out. Uh, I, I don't get that wild. one, but 
they got the one that mattered the most for the league. I'll say that. That's true. Yeah, Penn State uh, is fun to watch. They're intriguing. Uh, they dunk the ball a lot. Penn, uh, Lamar Stevens is really versatile, really athletic. And they just got a lot of speed on that team. I think they have more staying power this year than we've seen so far <clears throat> under Pat Chambers. And, and it's interesting, outside of kind of that top three, uh, Michigan State, like you said, beating Seton Hall was huge, especially with Maui and Duke coming up. That Seton Hall game was great. It reminded me a lot of the Duke game from the tournament last year with the big shots and the back-and-forth finish at the end. Ohio State has made a, a statement. I think they've looked better. Even though Maryland hasn't stumbled at all, they haven't played the caliber component that Ohio State has. I think Agreed. Ohio State's proven more so far. Then you got those at Maryland to kind of round out that top three, in my opinion. And uh, you got to put Penn State and Wisconsin, I think, kind of in that second tier. It may be Michigan, too. They Michigan had a nice well, yeah. against Creighton. Yeah. yeah, the Creighton win was nice. And then I, I think... In that tier as well, you have teams like Michigan, Illinois, and Indiana where you're not sure. You see the talent there. Indiana's look better than I expected. I don't know if you agree with that. No, they have. Um, the Prince, the first half's a little dicey, but then they pulled away in the yep. second half. You know, Trace Jackson Davis is going to be a problem. You right. Know, we got two really, really good freshman bigs with him and your boy Coburn. So, uh, yeah, if they can ride those two big fellas, they, they can have a lot of say in this race. Yeah, so the bottom might be a little uh, – more shallow this year than years past but I, I do think that one through seven or eight is going to be pretty competitive and, and I think any of those teams you know four through eight can challenge one through three on any given night so I'd agree with that we'll have to see <clears throat> learn a lot more coming up with the ACC Big Ten Challenge where they stack up with uh, another premier conference before that we got the Thanksgiving tournament week so is there anything that is coming up next week that jumps out to you as far as matchups as far as destinations um i love watching hoops during thanksgiving week we can talk about it a little bit next week uh in more depth on the show but just projecting out what intrigues you i assume maui and michigan state's gotta be at the top of the list yep you're absolutely right about that uh for those who haven't been it's a blast to go to i tried to pull it off this year but couldn't do it just bad timing um, but it's a, it's a great event, and it, I love that it's over before Thanksgiving. It's right. a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You can spend your Thanksgiving on the beach and hang out and watch a little football early in the morning. There you go. Eat some turkey at night and then fly back. Um, but I'm definitely looking forward to seeing that. They're going to get Virginia Tech in the opener, the Dayton, Georgia, winner or loser, depending on what happens in that first game. But hopefully if they win those two, then you get Kansas – at the end, so that you're talking about a non-conference schedule of Kentucky, Seton Hall, Virginia Tech, Georgia, Kansas, Duke, all in the first month of the year. It says pretty battle-tested. It's more full than a plate's about to be on Thanksgiving. Coming Got up that next right. Week. Uh, any other teams off the top of your head, like at Battle for Atlantis or out in Vegas or any of these destination tournaments that are – just a blast to watch this time of year. Uh, Atlanta seems fun. I kind of like how that has emerged. I remember when it, it first happened, you couldn't even find it on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact that they actually do it in a ballroom is pretty crazy. Yeah. Like you pan up. I like and you the can lights. See the I know some people don't like it, but I, I know I like how it's just kind of like blue lighting. It feels like they're underwater. The visual works. There. Yeah, no, I definitely like that. And I, I, I still think it's crazy that you can look up and actually see chandeliers <laughs> over the court. Uh, but the fact that that event has become as great as it has, as great as it has is awesome. Because uh, again, you couldn't find it on TV, and now you know ESPN bought it, and it's become you know arguably the, the second you know most important preseason tournament outside of Maui. So you know, I, I think that's a lot of fun, and I, and I love that a Big Ten team is in it every year, and they play really, really early on Thanksgiving Day, mm-hmm. and so you kind of get it started with that. I think it was Wisconsin I was in it last year, and that's when we found out, you know, how good they could be because they pushed Virginia all the way to the end in the right. final. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Cool. We'll talk more about Thanksgiving matchups next week. We'll know a little bit more with how those uh, brackets are shaping up. Probably chat Tuesday if you're going to be here. Yep. Got your, you know I'm going to be here. Got your guy. <laughs> not even a question. Got your guy, Kenny Goins, hopefully joining us for our Thanksgiving week episode. So uh, we'll see what he has to say. Tell him I appreciate the Duke shot, <laughs> yes, as I'm I know. sure all Spartan fans do. I appreciate it. Got me a ticket to the Final Four, yeah, so we exactly. got to hang out in Minneapolis because of Kenny. So I'll so take I hit a game winner in Italy yes, I saw a couple that as days well. ago, so, so glad to see he, as as, he's doing his thing. As long as Kenny and I can get our time zones on point, uh, we'll get him on and we'll get you on next week. Sounds good, man. All right.
All right, thanks once again to Harold and Jerry for joining me. Two BTN fixtures. Everyone knows Harold around the office for uh, his help and insight and stat packs that he sends out. And if you ask people in the sports industry as far away as ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut, they know Harold as well. So a uh, big-time figure in the industry. And then, of course, everyone knows Jerry as well around here and throughout the Big Ten Conference. He's been a long-time fixture on our television sets and uh, in the sport of football. So great episode. Appreciate both of them jumping on. Appreciate everyone listening out there. For everyone listening, if you uh, have not already, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Podbean, or on the Big Ten Network YouTube channel. Subscribe to that channel, and there's a playlist where all the episodes can be found. And also, if you like the show, like the content we're slinging, please leave a favorable rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, almost out of thank yous, but I want to give one to everyone for listening and to Wes White for producing the show. I always appreciate him for stitching it together. And as we keep it moving into uh, late November, Thanksgiving week, should have an episode for you next week that will touch on the upcoming rivalry week, and we should have a a, a cool guest we alluded to with Harold. uh, Kenny Goins coming up next week, so stay tuned for that. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon here on the Take 10 Podcast.